athletes are very competitive. They don't like to lose, but yet they have lost. You know, they have failed, but they figure out a way to, you know, get up from that and win. So if you put them in an office and, you know, they don't meet a quota or they're not the best in the office, which they won't be when they're just coming in, you know, it sets a higher standard for them, something for them to look at and, you know, kind of set a goal to achieve because in the end, you know, even in the office, they don't want to lose. They don't want to be the weak link. And so I think that that's one thing where you could drop an athlete in a company and they're going to work their butts off to get better and better each day and eventually not be that the lowest person on the totem pole. Hi, this is Trisha Liston, former Duke women's basketball player and first round draft pick of the Minnesota Lynx. And you're listening to the Heads and Tails podcast. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete's story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life, but you can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. Today I'm excited to bring you Trisha Liston, who's a former Duke women's basketball player who is eighth on the all-time scoring list. She's a first-round draft pick of the Minnesota Lynx. She's a WNBA champion. She played professionally in Italy, Spain, and Korea, and she currently specializes in job placement for former college athletes at Drum Associates, which is a full-service recruitment firm. Can we start off by talking about like what went into your decision to retire from basketball? Yeah, so I've had back problems since probably my senior year in high school. And then, you know, through college, I was able to kind of keep that, um, you know, under control. And then professionally, it started wearing on me a little bit more because I don't know if people are familiar, but if you play in the WNBA, that's generally in the summer. So most players will then go overseas as well. So you're playing all year round and it it was just a lot of wear and tear. And, um, so towards the end of my career, that that kind of started bothering me a little more than what was comfortable, and it started affecting my everyday life. And then, you know, along with that, mentally, I, w- I had kind of been thinking about, you know, what's next and what I wanted to do, and maybe that, you know, it was the right time to move on to something else. I kind of wanted something more permanent. As far as location, I wanted to be in one area and be able to kind of start a new life after that. So I guess they both kind of came at head with each other, you know, physic probably mostly because of the physicality and you know the injury with my back but then also mentally I was kind of at the point where I was okay to accept that okay so where did this back injury kind of start I don't know I think it might be a little bit of genetics and hereditary because both I have three older sisters two of them have had back problems and then my dad also has so maybe a little bit to that and maybe just all of the, you know, wear and tear from playing however many hours a day for 24 years. I think it kind of just broke down on me a little bit. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And then when you said that you got to a place mentally where you were kind of okay to accept that, like, what does that mean? I guess like you were happy with what you've accomplished or. I mean, I felt like I had done so much with basketball from, you know, high school to going to Duke to you know, a number one or a number, a first round draft pick, and then actually winning a WNBA championship. And then all the places that basketball took me both overseas and in the States, you know, I had done much more than I ever dreamed of doing. 
was that an easy decision for me? No, not at all. But I was mentally second guessing if I wanted to do something else. And then, you know, the back thing came up and it was, it just seemed like it was the right thing to do at the time. All right. So what fears did you have kind of making that decision? Just like the what's, what's next kind of thing? Yeah, that was, I mean, that was one of the hardest decisions I've probably made in my 25 years, just because of the uncertainty. And I had been playing basketball since I could remember, you know, that was what I was good at. That was what I liked to do. That was what I was comfortable doing. So I was kind of nervous of if that was the right move and if I'd miss it and if I'd regret it and if I should have, you know, done something different. But I feel like with any big decision, you kind of have both sides to that. So, you know, eventually I just kind of had to put my foot down and stop going back and forth and just say, you know, this is it. And let's see what happens next. Okay. Uh, Did you feel like you were prepared uh, to make this transition? Like based off of what you learned in your professional career in basketball and also uh, your time at Duke? I think so. I mean, obviously going to a school like Duke, you have the preparation both from a, you know, academic standpoint, but then also the real life experiences there and the people that you come into contact with. And, you know, I learned a lot definitely from there. And then also going out to play in the WNBA, but more so overseas, you know, I was completely on my own. Two of the three places, it was a language that I did not speak. In South Korea, it was a language that I could not even understand or read. So, you know, there was definitely a lot of life challenges that I think, you know, a lot of things can't be, you know, much harder than that in terms of the working world. And so I kind of felt like, you know, I was I've been faced with a lot of obstacles and somehow I've overcome them. So I felt like in that sense, I was, you know, prepared. And when you kind of transitioned to your life after basketball, did you sell that, you know, kind of to future employers when you were trying to get a job? I did. And I mean, you know, at first I took a little time off just from playing and also worrying about what was next. So I, really took a couple months to just relax, clear my mind. And then once I started getting back on track of finding out what will be next, I got in touch with my colleague, my boss now, Carly Drum, who kind of started this whole division one thing at Drum Associates. And she really brought that out of me to take my life experiences, take my experiences from basketball and realize that those can be transferred and they will be transferred and to kind of be a little bit more confident than I probably was. Okay. So what has your transition to life after basketball been like? At first it was different because like I said, I took some time off. So I had more free time than I had ever had um, before then, but it was nice. All my family is in Chicago. So I was back in Chicago, you know, a lot of family events, uh, weddings, babies, so things like that. It was nice to just be around for that. But as far as the mental transition after basketball, there was definitely you know, thoughts of like, what am I going to do now? And, you know, confusion of, will I find something that I loved as much as basketball? And it, it wasn't easy at first, but it was definitely just a different adjustment. All right. Uh, so what would you say like the biggest struggle has been, you know, since, since retiring from basketball? I think not having that competitive outlet to just 
be able to go and step on the court and just kind of let everything go and, you know, really get a kind of compete. And I feel like having, you know, working for something like winning a game or scoring 20 points or breaking this record and this and that, like there's kind of just milestones that are really fun and things to reach for. So I feel like there's not really any of those necessarily in my life right now. So I think just the competitiveness of it. Okay. So did you have any hobbies like outside of basketball while you were playing? Uh, and do you, did you, or do you have any hobbies now, you know, since retiring? Yeah. I, I mean, I would say they were, they've probably remained the same. I'm very close with my family. So just spending time with them and doing different things with them. I love to exercise. So even now, um, not doing much basketball because the jumping and the pounding kind of aggravates my back a little bit, but you know, I'm still working out probably every day. I love to travel. I still try to do that as much as I can, but obviously it's a little different now with quote unquote, a real job, but yeah, those would probably obviously hanging out with friends and just having a good time. Okay. Uh, and how have you worked around your back injury while still, you said fitness and exercising is one of like your, your favorite things to do. So how have you kind of worked around your back injury to still, you know, get the same benefit out of it? Yeah. So it was, I, I believe it was the end of last summer or maybe in the middle, uh, the doctor told me that I wasn't even supposed to run. So I took that summer and kind of did a lot of swimming um, and then after that, where it kind of cooled down and was actually bearable, I can still do, you know, weight classes and yoga and, you know, other forms of cardio. And now I'm back to, you know, running a couple times a week and it, it's pretty much okay that there's obviously some things like heavy jumping and things like that, that I just try to stay away from for the sake of myself. I'd rather not wake up tomorrow and uh, not be able to bend over and pick something up off the ground. But there's definitely, you know, now there have hasn't been as many issues, but last summer was kind of a time where I had to figure out what I could do and what I couldn't do and also get it to cool down because it was pretty bad at that time. And do you think it was bad because it had been it had gone on for so long and you've kind of you pushed you were kind of forced to push through it throughout your career and you didn't really ever yeah. give it time to kind of calm down? Yeah, I think that, you know, especially with the WNBA and overseas and that combination, there was really, you know, two weeks probably in the year that you didn't have to be at either one. And so it was kind of just constant pounding. And I think it was just too much to handle for my back at that point, especially because it had, you know, been previously, there had been issues with it previously. Did you ever have to, were you ever hurt at any point in your career that you had to like miss time on the court? I mean, you're the all, one of the all-time scorers at Duke, so I'm assuming you had to be on the court for most of it. Yeah, I think uh, at Duke I might have, I don't think I ever missed a game. There was a couple in the WNBA where um, maybe two or three where I just, I, I had to sit out because, you know, the pain was pretty bad. In your back, not like a different injury, you're saying? Nope. That, the only injury I've had it has my back. I mean you know, your average sprained ankles and things like that, but um, nothing that was significant. All right. So what do you think was the key to your, I guess, health in at, at Duke to be able to play in all those games? Well, I think that the trainers there, both, you know, strength and conditioning wise, as well as, um, 
you know, like therapy wise and doctors and stuff was kind of first class. So anything that we needed was right there for us, whether it was rehab, whether it was extra weights or extra conditioning. And they kind of knew each player well enough to design it and adjust things here and there to make it, I guess, sustainable. Okay. So they kind of knew like when to push and when to kind of hold back a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was definitely times where, you know, either, you know, in lifting, there were certain lifts that you wouldn't do, you know, both myself and somebody else who had, let's say, a shoulder injury or knee injury, you know, they wouldn't push things that didn't necessarily, I wouldn't say they don't matter, but, you know, there's bigger, there are bigger issues at stake. Okay. And, and it was an environment where it was like, okay to say that you were not feeling 100% or? Yeah. And I think that, at least, you know, from the teams that I was on there, nobody wanted to sit out, you know, at least I never did. So if I was saying something about being hurt, you know, I was hurt. You know, I wasn't, nobody was really trying to get out of anything. And so I think that it was a level of respect there that everyone kind of understood. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I was just curious about that stuff. And because a lot of my podcast is about injuries and a lot of people who are listening to this probably are, have dealt with injuries before. So now let's start talking about some translatable skills that athletes possess into the workforce. And that's, you know, really your expertise. So I was kind of curious, like, you know, what, what skills are, are translatable uh, that, that you found since your retirement and in, in mm -hmm. your job too? Yeah. So uh, off the top of my head, I would probably say time management, their communication skills, their work ethic, the ability to multitask generally a lot of sports are team sports, so they're team players, they're competitive, they're coachable. You, you have to be coachable in any sport that you're playing or else you're not going to get any better. Generally, if you're playing in college, you're committed, so they're commitment. And I think that athletes sort of respect the chain of command. You know, if you're a freshman, you know that the seniors are kind of running the show and they have that leadership. And I think that transfers into the office as well because you're coming in at entry level. And so you kind of respect that hierarchy above you. All right. And a couple off. Yeah. You, you kind of alluded to before how, like how demanding, you know, playing a college sport and a professional sport is like how much time do a lot of division one athletes even have to get internships in the off season and to kind of build up a resume. So basically I guess what my question is, is like based off of those translatable skills that you said, how, how could an athlete translate that? into something to put on a resume right and you're exactly right about that you know that most college athletes especially division one and even so the high division one level you're not going to have many internships i know for myself i didn't have any i would come home and you know work a couple weeks at my dad's office but other than that it's kind of difficult timing wise you're generally required to be there in the summer so you know that's kind of Another thing that we teach and we kind of coach through at Drum is the fact that you have to show these translatable skills to people. That's also what we do on the other end of trying to talk to the companies directly and show them this. Because oftentimes, if you're not an athlete, you don't really understand all the time and all the efforts that went into your sport to make. Sometimes they look at the resume and they're like, well, you have no internships. Um, so I think our big thing is you know, to really draw out your time commitments of, you know, not only were you practicing, let's say, 
two to three hours a day, which, you know, there's definitely college regulations now, but you're also going to study table for your sport and then you're going to class and then you're, you're also traveling for your sport at a lot of times and you have your games and then you have your homework. You know, there's a lot of things that athletes have to do in one day. And I think when the quote unquote average person realizes this, they understand that, wow, like, how did you do as well as you did? with all of these requirements. Um, and I think that's kind of one of our big things is to just show people what they don't know about athletes, I guess, which is all of these skills that they have required through their sport rather than through four or five internships at high level banks. So I guess like from a resume standpoint, that's not really like what, you know, your job is like at Drum Associates, you kind of go to companies and advocate for athletes by kind of educating the non-athletic regular people, as I've once uh, heard the <laughs> phrase, about what it really means to, to play a college sport to show, you know, how demanding that kind of schedule is. Yep. And then on the other side, we also do work with the athlete on kind of how to present their resume, you know, as far as formatting goes. And we kind of We'll walk them through what they have, or we'll also give them advice on if they don't have a resume and kind of how to build that and include these pieces of, what would you call it, you know, points to put on their resume. So like, I'm just thinking like from a time management perspective, like on a resume, what would that look like uh, for an athlete? Like what would, like, what would be the wording for, for that? I would say managed, uh, I, I I think the requirement when I was there was, you know, 40 hours of practice a week. So I would say managed a full class load on top of 40 plus hours of practice while coordinating travel schedules with professors. You know, that could be one line, but you could also probably break that up into, you know, two or four if we really broke it down individually. And then like, what about the leadership kind of component to it? Like, how, how would you throw that on the resume? Yep. I mean, especially if you're captain, that definitely should go on there. And I think talking from my experience, since I was a captain for two years, you learn how to not only talk to people above you, your coaches, but you have to learn how to talk to your peers. You have to learn how to talk to each person differently, but you also have to kind of demand more from them. So I guess in, on your resume, you would definitely mention the communication skills that you had and the ability to manage a group of people and kind of get them on the same page as your boss, your quote, your coach, um, et cetera. All right. So from based off of those, those two examples, I, I kind of hear like the quantification of what you did. So like, I guess people, like on resumes, people want to see numbers. Like you, you mm -hmm. did this many hours and this many, you know, you led this many people, like, is that what, what employers are looking for? I think a lot of times they do want to see that. And for athletes, you know, to really show, at least for their time commit, you definitely want to have a number on there. As far as the leadership piece goes, you can kind of, I think, swing that a couple different ways, um, depending on your team. And maybe the team size is something that's significant that you would want to show on there or, you know, if you, you could say you led the team to two national championships or to four straight final fours, you know, it just kind of shows the level of the level of commitment or, you know, 
Yeah, I see what you're saying. Accomplishment. Yeah. yeah. I wish I could say that I led my team to a final <laughs> four, but. <laughs> so, you know, what kind of, like, what sets athletes apart in the corporate world? Like, from what you've seen? Yeah, I would say, you know, two big things is athletes are very competitive. They don't like to lose, but yet they have lost. You know, they have failed but they figure out a way to, you know, get up from that and win. So if you put them in an office and, you know, they don't meet a quota or they're not the best in the office, which they won't be when they're just coming in, you know, it sets a higher standard for them, something for them to look at and, you know, kind of set a goal to achieve because in the end, you know, even in the office, they don't want to lose. They don't want to be the weak link. And so I think that that's one thing where you could drop an athlete in a company and they're going to work their butts off to get better and better each day and eventually not be that the lowest person on the totem pole. You know, another thing that I would say is that their willingness, their willingness to learn because they do want to be the best. And I think they understand that there's people above them sometimes and kind of putting in the time to get to the top and they have to be coachable on the court and you also have to be coachable in your job because like I said, the people above you kind of have that knowledge that you need. And I think they understand that well. And so, you know, they can kind of pick up on things quickly because they've been used to that. You know, you have to learn 10 plays in a day sometimes. And then in the office, you know, when you get there, you're learning a handful of things that you need to be able to pick up on quickly. And I think that that, that athletes have that innate ability yeah, and I, I think coachability is like obviously you need that to be an elite level athlete, but you also need that in life. And it's not always, I guess, n- not everyone has it. But like, mm-hmm. it's almost a personal question for me. It's like, how do you project coachability to uh, a future employer? Because I I know like I've had I have an entry level job currently, and in trying to advance my career. I I don't always have all the skills that they're looking for, mm-hmm. but I, there's no doubt in my mind that I couldn't figure it out in like two hours. But that's kind of the the feedback is that that I get is that I don't have the skills that they're looking for. So how do you project that coachability um, skill to an employer that makes that kind of overrides the fact that you may lack some of the skills they're looking for? Yeah, I mean, I think that's tough, especially if you only have, you know, one shot with your resume. Okay, so you put on willingness to willingness to learn. But if they're only reading your resume, you know, maybe 100 people have that on there. So who do they know? Well, is really kind of that person who's going to take initiative. So I think I don't have the one answer. But part of it, you know, if you're in person, and you're, you're, that personality comes through that you really do have a genuine interest and, you know, you want to learn and you're open to learn. And I think, you know, being able to do that in person is probably your best shot at that. But, you know, also finding creative ways to get in front of this person that shows that you're not kind of just applying to apply. You really are genuinely interested and you want to really, you know, grab their attention and kind of, I wouldn't say, but be persistent with it, I guess. Okay. You know, but that is kind of a hard thing to to sell, especially if you're just reading it on paper. Yeah, I see what you're saying. You got to get 
got to get some face time and then uh, work work your magic from th- from that point. Yeah. So why would employers ever be hesitant to hire athletes? I think as we touched on before, you know, if you took my resume out from college and you took the average Duke student's resume, they would look like two completely res- two completely different resumes because I'm sure they probably had five plus summers of internships, um, you know, and I had none. You know, I had one that was really, really part time and it was because my dad had the company. So I was able to go in, you know, a week at a time or two weeks at a time. And so a lot of, you know, employers now, A, have, sorry, ATS systems where it automatically tracks your resume. So you're going through a computer and if you apply with no resumes in there or with no internships in there, you know, obviously that resume is going to lose out to the one who had five. So I think that's probably the biggest hesitation that they have is just that they don't, they don't know what they can't see, I guess. Um, okay. And that would probably be the biggest thing. That makes sense. So how do you at Drum Associates kind of try to combat that? Right. So we, like you mentioned earlier, we act as an advocate for the athletes. So we will go to companies and, you know, people in hiring positions and kind of explain to them what we do on the candidate side, which is the athlete side, but also telling them the value of these athletes, showing them these traits that are transferable and really expressing how confident we are in the athlete to make the transition from on the court to off the court into the office. And a lot of people just don't realize the time commitment and, you know, everything that an athlete has to balance in college and also these traits that can quickly be adapted into the office. And I think just educating them more so to want them to hire athletes and, you know, eventually when that happens, they come through us to hire the athletes and then we go out there for them and find, you know, the athlete that they're looking for. Okay. And is it usually the companies that come to you to hire the athletes or is it usually the athletes coming to you looking for a job? We've had both, you know, and then we've had the, the flip side of both of those where we're going to the companies and also we're going to the athletes because we have a job that we want to put them in. So I, I guess it works on all angles there. Do you ever get resistance from any of the companies that you go out to trying to advocate to? Not really. I would say the only form of that would be that they have, a, at the time, they don't have a need for either entry-level jobs or something like that, and they have an executive position to fill. But I wouldn't say that there's resistance necessarily. Okay. What are some common mistakes that athletes make that make them unattractive to employers? I don't think there are many. I mean, the the resume thing, but that's really nothing that they can they can change. The fact that you don't have internship, you can't really make that up. So, I feel like, you know, to an employer, I I wouldn't necessarily see what mistake they would make. I guess I'm thinking in terms of like social media posts and and things of that nature, kind of like off the field uh, stuff. Okay, yeah. I mean, I feel like respectful, you know, and timely timeliness in the way that you respond to either emails or phone calls. That's a big important one in the way you communicate um, through the process of getting a job. 
I guess on social media nowadays, the way that people present themselves is a huge thing. A lot of companies can do background checks and, you know, find, find you through LinkedIn, through Facebook, through Instagram. So I would say keeping that kind of clean and private would definitely be something that could potentially lead to be a mistake. Okay. I don't know if that, that answers your question good enough, but. No, I think that was, that was great. I don't know if we've touched on this before, but like what are there maybe like three things that athletes should be doing during their career to set themselves up for success after their career? Well, I think that's just it. That's one of them is to prepare before it's over. I think a lot of college athletes goal is to play professionally. And that's, that's great to have goals and set things like that, but also be prepared for it if that doesn't work out. So I think to kind of mentally put yourself, yes, you want to go pro, but at the same time, you have to have a backup plan. So I think one would be preparing for it before it's too late. I think another one would be just finding your interests outside of athletics, looking into what your hobbies are that really aren't, let's say, you know, if basketball is that, you know, finding things outside of that that you enjoy. And then another thing I would say is just doing research on the different in industries or industries of interest, just so that when that time comes, you have done your research, you've done some of the groundwork, and you kind of have a little bit of a sense of direction of where you want to go. But I think the biggest thing is starting to mentally and also do some actual preparing before it's too late or before, you know, the time comes. Okay. What did that look like for you when you were trying to set yourself up for success after your career? Yeah. So for me now, having worked here and kind of really diving into this, it's kind of weird to think about my position. I think one thing that I did have going was I mentally always knew that there was going to eventually come a time where I wasn't going to play basketball, you know, and junior and senior year, I was still unsure. So I wanted to be prepared for both um, by thinking of different options. But I think if I would go back and do it again, you know, it worked out great for me. But I think that there would definitely be some more, I, I don't even know if I had a LinkedIn profile by then. So I would have definitely started that earlier and really tried to grow my network on there. But I think just mentally being able to kind of look down both roads kind of helped me. And I took it year by year and just tried to be in a spot to be able to, you know, move forward. And I think it just so happened that I saw what my boss Carly was doing and that, you know, I connected with her and it kind of worked out probably more perfect than a lot of other situations would have, you know, cause it, it can be a long process from, um, find seeking out jobs and then applying and then going through the interviewing process and things like that. And I did a little bit of that, but it just happened that, you know, I, Carly and I crossed paths and it seemed like a perfect match. And now I'm helping people who are in my shoes be a little less confused, have more sense of direction and, you know, help them on their way. In terms of like building a network on LinkedIn, what advantage do athletes have in building that network? Yeah, I think it's huge. Um, I mean, you just have access to so many people on there, um, alumni, other people who play the same sport as you. And I think it's just nice to have, not even nice, but I think it's beneficial to be able to, you know, either connect with these people and grow your network. So in the, in the future, 
you know, you have different outlets. Yeah, and, and LinkedIn's cool because you could see like a company that you might be interested in and then see who in your network has connections to that company or that job that might be able to put your resume in front of someone. Um, mm -hmm. So like w when you send LinkedIn invites to connect, do you put a note or do you just go by the approach of just like, just connect, hit the button that does like the generic message? Like, does that go into the communication you know, thing that we talked about earlier, like appropriate communication. Yeah, I think it could, you could kind of go either way with that, depending on obviously the level of how you know this person or if there's a connection between there. But I think, you know, it doesn't hurt to put a note in there. But also if, if you're kind of, if you have some sort of basis of why you're connecting with them, I think it's also okay to send it without one. All right. Yeah, so I, I kind of do a both as well. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know about you, but for me, working in a corporate environment is often difficult just because you're inside, don't always have a mm. window, fluorescent lights, <laughs> sitting in a chair all day, very different from like being an athlete. Uh, so where do athletes struggle in a corporate environment and how can they kind of combat those those struggles? Yeah, I think it's exactly what you just said. The biggest shock is that, you know, with most jobs, you're sitting at a desk all day. And the fact that you have to schedule your workouts is kind of a, a, a new thing because before your workouts were, quote unquote, your job and you scheduled other things around that. So I think that's definitely kind of a big adjustment that the athlete has to make, especially those ones who are you know, always wanting to be on the go and exercising and things like that. It's definitely different to be, you know, sitting all day. So I think that, you know, my piece of advice to them is to schedule workouts, stay competitive with your workouts, but you have to build them into your day. So, you know, maybe twice a week, you're going before work, maybe once a week, you're allowed to go at lunch. And then, you know, two other days, you're going after work. But I think scheduling that out at the beginning of the week, I know for me, working out keeps me sane. And so I think really making time for that is a big adjustment, a big adjustment and transition from, you know, playing sports to working in the corporate world. All right. Are there any like companies in particular who kind of cater to like an athletic mindset need, you know, in, in a corporate environment uh, with like whether it's access to gyms or uh, something along those lines, like what should athletes be looking for in a company to, you know, work in an environment that's more what they're used to or more conducive to their likes and interests? Yeah, I mean, I feel like that can vary based on multiple things. But if you're working in a startup, generally, you know, the office is different and there's rooms for you to walk around and maybe there's a pool table and things like that. Or maybe you're working in, you know, a real estate company and there's a gym in your building. So I feel like there's in each industry and in, specific to each company, there's different things that might look more attractive for the athlete and others that look, you know, less attractive. I think it depends on both the company and also um, the athlete. All right. How like early in the maybe the interview process should can an athlete like ask about those kind of benefits? Like, do you have a gym? Do you have this? Like, when is an appropriate time to kind of ask those questions about work environment? 
Yeah, I would say, you know, there's certain questions that you want to ask on, you know, maybe even the first interview. I think part of that kind of comes from feeling it out, feeling out um, how the interview is going. You obviously don't want to press too much. You haven't gotten an offer yet or anything like that. So, you know, asking kind of questions that are a little bit, I wouldn't say unnecessary, but, you know, not necessarily relevant right then. I think you definitely can ask those questions because obviously it'll affect your happiness and kind of your overall performance there. But I think it's a balance of figuring that out. I wouldn't necessarily say, oh, second interview for sure. Or after you get the final offer, I think, you know, you kind of have to feel it out and make sure it's the appropriate time. I know that's not a definitive answer, but. Um, no, I, I get it. <laughs> um <laughs> So what advice do you have for athletes who might not know what they want to do? Like, is there like, what's like the first step like that they can do to try to start brainstorming some ideas that uh, of their interests? Yeah, well, first of all, they're not alone because I was in the same boat, had no idea. So I think one thing that you can't really teach is just to mentally relax. You know, a lot of people out there are in the same position that you are. You know, especially when you're younger and maybe right out of college, you're young, you're going to have probably a couple jobs unless you really, you know, you're a doctor or something like that, that you were really born to do. So I think the one thing I would say is to kind of be calm and just try to relax your mind as much as you can. And then some actual things that I would do is just brainstorming things that interest you and, you know, things that you might like and do research on them. Don't be afraid to you know, educate yourself about the different industries that are out there. Um, the more you know, the better you'll feel about picking a different industry. So just doing kind of the background educating w w would be another one. Okay. Uh, just as we wrap up the interview here, uh, what's the single best piece of advice you can give an athlete transitioning from their sport? I would say to be confident, take the confidence that you have on the field or in the court or in the gym and just know that you're going to be that person in the office. It might not look the same, but you have to kind of own that, own that you're going to be successful wherever you go. If you keep, you know, those skills that you have and that mindset that you have that, you know, you can do anything with that. Okay, cool. So how can listeners utilize the services of Drum Associates? Like, how, how does it kind of work? Yeah, I would definitely visit our website, www.drumassociates.com, and send us an email on there or, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn. We can go from there. It's obviously case to case, but we do some career coaching type things for athletes that, you know, can be of interest for both freshmen in college all the way up to seniors. So... We kind of have a little bit of everything on there. Okay, cool. So definitely reach out. And where can people find you on social media? I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, which is probably my favorite. And then I'm also on LinkedIn. All right, cool. Well, Trisha, I really appreciate you taking the time to kind of explain, you know, your success and your transition and to give athletes advice on how to make their transitions a little less difficult than it was for me, certainly. I, that's something I really struggle with. So I, I, I appreciate everything that you guys are doing at, at Drum Associates. Yeah, thank you for having me. Anytime. <laughs>